0: hey i'm matt justin and i'm tom massero and you're listening to the crypto miner podcast and welcome back to episode 15 of the Crypto Miner Podcast. I'm Tom Macero, and I've got my host, Matt Justin, with me. And today, we're, we're going to be having a conversation with the two co-founders and co-CEOs of Brains, as well as the operators of SlushPool. We welcome Jan Chopik and Pavel Marovitz here today. Matt, would you mind taking it away?
1: Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for uh, coming
2: on. Well, thanks for having us here.
0: Hello, everybody.
1: So I wanted to start off with your backgrounds and, and what you did before crypto. Can you maybe give us a little rundown? Jan, maybe you can start and, and then tell our listeners how you got to the space.
2: So my adventure started probably somewhere in the kindergarten with, with the computers, as everybody did, right? But I'm a systems programmer. That's my major that I studied in the university, and we've met with follow. Uh, sometime around 2005 but that was our first employment <laughs> it was interesting because we actually met uh, with a company who we were working for a company who was doing mainframe business I don't want to say the name of the company here but uh, it was like uh, for us a scary experience after the university years when you actually are told how to develop software and then you meet something like an old IBM mainframe where you still literally almost have punch cards And then our careers parted for a bit because I was a lot interested in embedded Linux and Pavel was more into some other areas, which he would explain. Professionally, we were not working together since 2006. And then we've met together at some project in 2009. And in 2011, we started the Brains company uh, and our main domain were embedded systems. So we were basically developing firmware. I think by that time I was introduced to Slush who was Pavel's uh, best friend. We went out to some sailing trip or whatever. Uh, and by that time, I was kind of like suspicious about Bitcoin. I thought it was some you know, funny money, monopoly money, and wasn't sure about the exact impact. And in about a year, I realized this is really something, but I didn't know how to enter the industry. And then since Slush was... Uh, interested in other topics like developing a hardware wallet and he didn't have the motivation to work uh, on slashpool anymore. I still wanted to keep the project going. He invited me and Pavel. So we sort of like changed, uh, we pivoted the, the, the company to like 100% uh, crypto oriented, you know, operation. So it started somewhere in April, 2013. And since then we've been running and developing and scaling the project because at that time the project was like a single machine system. And that was not something that would, you know, fit uh, today's industry needs. So that's the story from my end.
1: Great. That's, that's interesting that you guys were younger friends before this and, uh, and uh, Pavel. Can you give us your rundown on how
3: you got into this and
1: how uh, slush convinced you to join crypto?
0: Yeah, my,
3: my path to crypto was similar to guns in the sense that when I first uh, met Bitcoin and uh, the sense I was not uh, immediately caught because I didn't understand properly what it means. It was that the description was probably not what the right thing. Uh, but on the second explanation, it just it just caught me for, for life, I think. I started as a software engineer, completely independently of, of anything crypto-related, or uh, I didn't understand what a cryptography is or anything like this. I spent a lot of time working for banks and financial institutions. I spent some time scheduling airplanes and crews in uh, constraints programming environment. It was really interesting for me, but because Marek was my best friend in childhood and we spent a lot of time together working on different uh, computerish projects, I got to the Bitcoin through him, and we separated uh, going to a college. So he went. Uh, his road and I, I went uh mine. But when he when he created Slushpool and spent like two years uh working on Slushpool alone as alone person, twenty four seven, uh he got really tired from that and he had even some other ideas what to uh pursue. So he proposed me to join him or to be honest, it, it was like He offered me to buy the pool, but I thought it was a bad idea at that time uh, for him. Uh, So me and Jan joined uh, the project and we were from that time responsible for development and operations of the pool and it it created a space for him to uh, do something else. And it was in 2013 and uh, we never did anything outside of crypto space from that time. And we, we are definitely okay with it. like
1: it. Great. That's a really interesting story. Uh, I, I, wasn't aware that you guys were all friends and, uh, you and slush were, were childhood friends and, and that makes sense. And, uh, you all have a programming background, it seems that, uh, lends to your, your current development, uh, initiatives and so forth. So during running your pool. When did you first hear about this ASIC boost?
2: It was probably shortly after the, when the the patent paper was released. There was the, the, the website with the ASIC boost and actually I do remember some miners asking us about weird features that they wanted to roll the version bits and we didn't understand like why they wanted to do it initially so I think it was probably somewhere like 2016 or something like that because I came into this space
1: around the, the end of 2016 and then I, I learned about the whole dragon Min fiasco and, and so forth um, but you guys were the first uh, pool to support ASIC boost is that correct? yeah uh, in- I mean uh, other than the covert stuff from AntPool behind the scenes which we've come to learn of did you you guys were the first to to put this
2: in play on the backside right yeah because the mining protocol needed some adjustments so we were the ones uh, that produced the, the stratum uh extension that allowed configuring uh, version rolling, essentially. And version rolling is the feature that you need if you have a hardware that supports ASIC boost to generate multiple mid-states for, for the mining hardware. Maybe this is a little bit too too detailed.
1: Yeah. No, no. It, that, I, I understand what you're talking about. Some of our uh, listeners will, will, I'm sure, understand the technical part because... Um, We've all been following this, you know, as the Dragon Mint came out. Was, was that the catalyst to, to the uh, first ASIC boost?
2: Uh, actually, uh, yeah, we were originally involved with uh, the Dragon Mints because we were testing the hardware before it was even released to the public. And their concern was that the hardware itself could only do ASIC boost. It could not work without it, unlike S9s, who had both modes. And considering that, you need some support in the mining protocol. So we were originally uh, helping to develop uh, the firmware for for the Dragon Mint. And part of it was also making sure it's supported in the mining protocol. Uh, The whole
3: uh, version rolling thing thing makes sense in the global sense as well. It's not necessarily useful for uh, only one device. Uh, in that time there was a suspicion that, uh, people are doing covert version facing boost and helping themselves to get an edge, uh, and like allowing everybody to use version rolling, uh, is like leveling a field in a sense, because then you can officially uh, do version rolling or, uh, the visible. Uh, kind of uh, AC boost if your hardware supports that, uh, and then it it therefore creates similar or better or same opportunities for more miners. So this was a larger motivation why it made sense to change the protocol and uh, in this direction it was not necessarily only for the one device. Gotcha. So I was under
1: the impression that the actual ASICs have to be gated. To support ASIC Boost. Is this correct? Because uh, I'm, I'm not a hardware designer. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I dug into it a little bit, and the stuff that I pulled out was is that the chips have to support it. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that's true. Uh, and you have basically two, oh, there are two design options. You either say your chip only supports ASIC Boost, and that also means you have to generate the work for the chips in a specific way. Essentially, you have to generate more work for every single chip or they have this logic uh, switchable, so you can either enable it or disable it. So the case with drag was that this was the default. It was enabled and you could not get rid of this feature because it also simplifies the chip design. And the S9s, they actually had it switchable so that some groups could potentially use it before other groups of miners.
1: At least that's our theory. And this would be designed in the tape-out
2: of the ASIC? Yes, that's really designed in in, in the tape-out of the ASIC.
3: It's one of the critical decisions you you have to make as a hardware designer. Uh, You you need to decide if you want to have this optional or hardwired or not present at all. Okay, and
1: uh, it seems that now uh, all the, the pools support ASIC Boost you have got your wish it looks like, because the playing field has been even um, I know the new m20 s uses ASIC Boost by default i don't think it can go backwards. Uh, I was told
3: right now it would be silly not to use ASIC boost, and it would be silly not to use the most energy most efficient uh, AC boost version out there, which is obviously the version rolling uh. Because you as a miner want to produce as much uh, hashes as possible and consuming the least amount of energy. And we as an industry, or maybe all we as Bitcoiners would like to have the the uh, mining operation be as efficient as possible, as leveled as possible. So that it, it creates opportunity for everybody or doesn't uh, give some people uh, advantage. I got you.
1: Is there any other uh, types of uh, enhancements like ASIC Boost that could be uh, used to gain more hashing out of the chips?
2: Oh, maybe one thing that uh, I find important to explain to people is that they think that ASIC Boost is directly uh, adding you more hash. But the point is that ASIC Boost actually uh, simplifies the chip design, so that means the chip with the same hash rate actually consumes less power. So you can technically use that power that you save in your power supply. Uh, you can use that power to overclock the chip. Technically speaking, you're saving about I don't know 10 to 13 percent of energy uh, on the efficiency ah. when you when you operate in the ASIC Boost mode. Uh, mm. From the other optimizations. It's really specific to every circuit design or every ASIC design. Most manufacturers are saying they are doing full custom design. And what that means is that they design the logic of their chip, but then they look at every... They don't use the standard libraries provided by the foundries that produce the chips, but they actually ha- have some some custom libraries. Problem is that it's difficult to really verify all this uh, because... Uh, this is an IP, so it, you will never, you know, get to see the sources or anything like that. But this is what they're claiming that they don't use the standard synthesis tools to generate the chip layouts, but they do manual layout and they even go down to gate level where they use custom uh, custom cell libraries to to generate the structures. Interesting.
3: These are all uh, like optimizations everybody tries to do. ASIC boost is very special in the sense that it is an algorithmic optimization. It's not like uh, trying to squeeze uh, better electron propagation somewhere within gates, uh, what everybody can uh, uh, do. But this was a breakthrough in the sense that it changed the algorithm, how you uh, compute uh, the hashes and immediately gives you the better, 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 efficiency. Great. I'm not aware of any other algorithmical optimization for
1: mining. Hmm. So, so it wasn't really a, um, it, it was a software upgrade that allowed you to overclock the chips further and keep them cooler. It wasn't actually a, uh, a, a real optimization to the chip itself. Is that what
2: I'm hearing? No, uh, I mean, overclocking itself is a problem. Thing. Uh, The ASIC Boost is a hardware feature of the chip that you either have available or don't have available on a specific ASIC, uh, which is the case with most modern chips.
0: So, the last couple of years, I would say prior to maybe this last eight or nine months, I wouldn't say things have been stagnant in mining, but there really wasn't a lot of, I would say, innovation. But it seems like uh, probably in the last eight months or so, there's been a ton of innovation and it's really been led by um, Brains itself w- with two major announcements with the Brains OS as well as Stratum 2. Would you guys like to, to just talk about that progression of, you know, being in it as long as you have? And then what drove you you guys to kind of start working on these particular new features and these new, new uh, protocols?
2: I'll try to cover the Brains OS part. At the time when we were researching the the ASIC boost and we were supporting, uh, uh, you know, the Dragon Mint uh, with, with the Stratum protocol extension, uh, we started developing uh, firmware for, for these devices as well. <clears throat> the problem was that uh, it didn't work out on a business level. And we had like all this code base <clears throat> with a nice Linux distribution. and everything, and we didn't know what to do with it. Uh, So we were like, okay, let's open source it. Uh, But then we were like, okay, uh, that may be a good idea, but we need to find, uh, you know, the target hardware. The T1s at that time, the Dragon were very rare. Uh, And the majority of the hardware were S9s. So it was very rational step that we decided, okay, we're gonna support the major mining hardware in the market, which were the S9s. Mm -hmm. And with that in mind, we released uh, Brains OS with supporting S9s. And that was the time when we started also researching why uh, everybody is talking about ASIC boost on S9s, but nobody can really use it. Uh, and we were really, really puzzled by the fact that even though uh, all these manufacturers are using uh, open source software components, CG Miner, Linux kernel, drivers, parts of... Uh, Linux distribution called OpenWrt, they, what they release, they're supposed to you know, provide you with the sources if you buy the hardware. But uh, the artifacts that you happen to download from GitHub are one thing, they're incomplete, and they're usually also obsolete. So you're not able to replicate whatever uh, the manufacturer produces. And that you know brings the questions what other features are in the hardware that you don't know about uh, if you don't have the proper uh, access to the source source code? Um, so that was the second motivation where we were trying to fix you know, this open source glitch in the industry where we you know Bitcoin Core is open source, it's heavily audited because it's a financial piece of software uh, but it relies on mining because miners are the ones who are securing the blockchain. So why should mining actually rely on on some proprietary closed-source uh, wannabe firmware that is buggy, that has some backdoors, with the Enbridge affair, for example, and has some features that are actually uh, preventing you from, you know, saving some energy or, you know, making your mining more more economical. Um, <clears throat> so these were all uh, motivations to work on a project like Breeze uh, to have it present in the industry and saying, oh, this is the go-to place if you want to develop uh, mining software, for example. So that's, that's for the as part.
3: The, the uh, Stratum V2 thing was motivated slightly differently. As a pool operator, we always deal with hundreds of thousands of connections Miners connecting to the pool, pushing their data, we distribute the work to the machines. And because Stratum v1 is uh, JSON based, it's basically a free form protocol, every device can uh, have slightly different dialect of the protocol. It was pain in the ass to support all the versions, uh, the different miners they connected to the pool. Uh, was re- reason one. Uh, reason two was, uh, because it's text-based, uh, it, it takes a lot of data to transfer, uh, the shares, the hashing, uh, information. So, and we have to pay for the infrastructure for, for the data. Uh, we wanted to support more interesting features on the device level or on the pool level because once we started to develop, uh, Brains OS, we, Somewhat saw that we are having one part in our hands, which is a firmware, and the second part in our hands, uh, the pool, and these two pieces are talking to each other with very inefficient old uh, protocol. So we we originally anticipated change in mining protocol years ago, but we didn't feel there is a space for actually changing things because. Pushing for protocol change means you need to uh, talk to a lot of people and give them something substantial so that they change. But once we uh, spent some time on CranesOS on and uh, discussing things, what can be changed, what, what can be improved, and we, we saw the opportunity to push it from two directions, from the mic, uh, pool side and from uh, the firmware side at the same time. In that time, roughly, when we started to work on v2, uh, Matt Corello announced his BetterHash. Uh, and a lot of people were asking us if we are going to support BetterHash on a pool because it had this great feature of choosing word on the on the miner's side. And we thought, okay, this is interesting. And we reviewed the protocol. It was Completely different thing than, uh, than uh And we somewhat liked some features. We really, really loved this feature of choosing the word, but we really disliked some aspects of the protocol, which basically prevented us uh, from uh, implementing it on the pool site. And we decided to uh, like bring this feature of word selection and bring it to, to the V2. So that it is still efficient uh but done in a way that we can implement it and support it on the pool side uh, and Matt was uh, great enough uh, in in the sense that he saw this opportunity to join forces uh, and do one protocol which would allow uh bring this awesome feature to the miners and at the same time. Uh, use all the features we wanted as as pool operator and firmware, uh, firmware producer. So this ended up as Stratum V2 and we'll see how it goes with implementing it and actually deploying it uh, to production.
1: Interesting. So I, I have a handful of questions in both arenas with the brain software but since we're talking about the Stratum 2 and we're right here right now, I'd like to uh, ask you to elaborate on a, a few things. Unfortunately, I didn't have the time to uh, fully read your uh, protocol overview. Uh, I kind of overglanced it. I was trying to catch up on, on your history and so I can prepare for our interview here. Can you explain to our audience what choosing work means and how that differs from what they're doing right now? Of course, uh, right now it
3: works roughly like this pool, uh, creates, a block candidate. Uh, it chooses transactions, which are going to end up in the future block, and sends only a small subset of this block to all the mining devices. And the mining devices are just doing the hashing thing. They are uh, rolling nodes and basically trying uh, random numbers uh, towards finding a hash which would make the block candidate a proper block. The critical thing is the miners themselves don't know the full block. They have no influence on what transactions will be in the final final block. So it allows uh, operators to mess with the block. For example, not put some transactions to the block because of censoring it, or putting some version bits. Uh, We had uh, this whole affair of uh, signalling uh, by miners if they want or they don't want segregated witness. Uh, all this thing is right now done on a pool site and the miners are just providing the hashing power. What work selection or job selection means is we are pushing this or moving this transaction selection and block construction to the miners' side. In a way that pool can still double check that the block is going to produce, produce proper coins attributed to the pool, uh, but and therefore it can provide its value. Everybody uh, joining the pool will share the payouts and stuff like it, that. This this kind of service uh, can be still present, but this the change is minor. Uh, running all the necessary software can produce the block candidate on his or her side without the pool, uh, influencing that. And the protocol is about how they can very efficiently negotiate, uh, this future block so that it doesn't bring some, like, inefficiencies, uh, to the mining process and at the same time allow the miner to, uh, like choose what they want and, and behave as more as an independent buyer in this sense.
1: Uh, so, so when they when you're saying choose what they want, does that mean that they could choose to do some work and not the other? Can you be a little
3: bit more specific? For example, if if uh, somebody wants to have blocks smaller, they can. Uh, they can mine empty blocks or hundred kilobyte blocks, or they can push their own transactions to the block. They can uh, they can just do what like construct a block in a way they, they like. It mostly ends up being transaction selection. At the end, most of the miners uh, would like to put the most valuable transaction to the block, so this algorithm. Will, would be typically uh, typically chosen, but it, it is more about preventing the pool to mess up with your block, to remove this uh, this power from the central point, which is the pool, and allowing people to ensure that the blocks are uh, made properly. And of course, uh, if I am a power user, power miner. I can for example trade put my own transactions to the block and not relay that you, you can do whatever you want, basically. It doesn't matter. In in the sense how you construct your your new uh Bitcoin block.
1: So so each each miner then creates what they think the block will be and then submits it to the pool and the pool decides? How does it how does like the the contention, say, I want all my transactions in and, you know, and I don't want anybody else's transactions in.
2: And it's fine as, as long as you comply with the uh, you know, requirements of the pool. So basically, uh, you have a, a separate protocol called job negotiation protocol that you use to you know, negotiate your work with, with uh, the pool. The pool says it's fine, but it's your selection of work. And then you start mining on it immediately yes what what, what
0: needs to
3: be uh, uh, there's one thing what the pool uh, decides, and it is uh, address uh, on which the new block is mined to, so that if the block is actually found, then the pool needs to. Cut it to PCs and distribute it to the miners because it, it is the, the service what does, uh allowing people to share the rewards because the probability of finding the block is very small for every single miner. So this service needs to be present still. Uh but everything else is on the miner. And if I I want mine Green transactions and other person wants to mine red transactions, it's okay. And who but, who founds the block, then the block is created. So if I'm lucky and I find my block, then the new Bitcoin block will be with green transactions. And if my colleague in other mining farm finds a block, uh, it can be red transactions in, in the block. But the, the idea is that the pool can double check that the future block Will be a correct one and it can account uh, for all these small differences in between uh, or among these different blocks and can properly uh, send payouts or rewards to the miners. But uh, in this world with uh, different blocks, there can be like a lot of different versions of what's potentially created as is the next Bitcoin block. This protocol allows allows all the miners work as more as a solo miner, but still get the uh, benefit of being connected to a pool.
1: I got you. So now I, I'm putting it all together. So whoever finds the actual block gets to decide on the transactions that are being put into that block, and then the pool splits up the block? Is that, is that, am I right? Yes, R- roughly yes. That's basically like being a solo miner and being on a pool connected. That, uh, that's essentially what you're bringing to, back to the mining world with Stratum 2?
3: Yes, until a certain V2 uh, you you could either be solo miner and choose uh, the future block, but not get the benefits of uh, pool mining, or you can you could join pool, but then you didn't have any almost any influence on how the blocks should be uh, created. With Stratum v2, we can separate these two things, and you can get better of the both worlds. I got you.
0: Great. Uh So what, one last question on the Stratum V2 stuff from from myself would be, in terms of manufacturer adoption, do you think Bitmain and MicroBT will adopt Stratum 2? Or what does that look like um, from how you guys look at the kind of the landscape from the manufacturer side?
2: Well... The spec is now considered to be a draft so it's not like recommended to be like implemented immediately because there's some technical discussion still around it about about the security part of the protocol and so on but uh there have to be i think the incentives are set pretty strongly in a way that the new protocol reduces bandwidth it's more efficient so i mean you as a pool operator, has a, or we as a pool operator, has a great incentive to actually implement the protocol because we will be saving uh, on our data bill, right? Um, and this also, you know, applies to the miner side. So it could be the miners who would be actually pushing the manufacturers. But we didn't want to, you know, keep this completely up to the manufacturers. So since we're uh, also rewriting uh, the CG miner, or we're writing a new mining software called BOS miner a BOS miner in Rust. And Stratum V2 would be the native protocol supported in, in, this, mining, in this mining software. So we want to have uh, Stratum V2 support in, in BrainsOS OS uh, from day one. So, this is now in the going, so once uh, the manufacturers have a competition uh, in the form of a competing firmware, they would consider and in order to you know to drive the adoption even further, we do have a translating proxy from v two to v one, and there should be a proxy also to the other direction, so that you can technically take uh, older you know mining devices or the ones that don 't want to you know implement new mining protocol and use proxy to translate it to v2. So we're trying to, you know, address all the errors at the same time. Just, you know, providing spec is not enough because, you know, you need to have some reference implementation and show it, that it actually works.
3: We, we spent some, some time uh, thinking about how to make the adoption as smooth as possible, and right now with the software, uh, with open source software, we are going to provide as an implementation of v2, you could gradually uh, switch from v1 to v2 as a miner or as a operat- or pool operator, like easily by using these proxies and translations. I pretty much hope that it's gonna be enough for people to adopt it because there is a lot of good reasons why v2 is better than v1. Uh, and by providing the software, we think uh it should be like used widely quite fast, at least we hope gotcha
1: so i I want to interject on this because I had a question i think um on the adoption as well, but my side was more on the on the pool side of things, which I think is uh is a little bit harder. I mean you have slush pool that will support it. What about the Chinese and all their pools? What is your plan to bring on, uh, let's say, uh, people like Poolin or F2 Pool to V2? And uh, are you providing the open stack for them to convert their backends to support it?
3: Backends are pretty diverse. Uh, What they would have provided by us is a proxy they can run in their their infrastructure, translating for V2 to V1, so that they could use for extended period of time their current servers, but at the same time provide V2 endpoints for the, their users. Obviously this V2 translated to V1 cannot support all the nice features of V2, but it can still be used for mining, uh, but otherwise we obviously don't want to spend time rewriting other people's pools, but it should be as close as this proxy in their infrastructure, what we can do. And we'll see if they are interested or not. It's everybody's decision. Difficult to predict, I would say. Could, could
1: you briefly go over all the benefits to the pool that they would get fr- by, you know, migrating to? v2 eventually i know one of my favorite is is that you're uh, eliminating empty block mining which was something that i was big proponent against i never understood why that was allowed in
3: the protocol oh, it is part of the bitcoin protocol you can create a block uh without with transactions which are valid and empty set of uh transaction wallet set i mean you can you have to have a coinbase transaction in the block but uh other than that it's perfectly fine Uh, to not have any other transactions there. So it is difficult to prevent this. And the reason why pools uh, do do mine empty block and we do it ourselves, even though we don't want to support it. The reason is it is inefficient on a network level to start mining on non-empty block because you need to distribute much more data to all your miners uh, to start on a new block if you want them to start on non-empty block. It is much data efficient to start, and therefore faster, uh, to start to mine on empty block. And immediately after sending this request to, to mine on this block, you send the full request on for mining on full block. And the time uh, between when the request is delivered to the miners influences uh, the chance or the probability of finding block as you as a as a uh, as a pool. So if there is not a big difference or if there is not a big ratio between transaction costs in a block and the basic reward, it is economically uh, better to start to mine on an empty block. It's just how the incentives are right now. Uh, made, and part of the fault is the Stratum protocol, Uh, nobody envisioned this kind of issues, and we just found a way how uh, to change the protocol, how to uh, implement some special support in Bitcoin D and some uh, tricks with memory pool so that we can make the mining on the full block from the beginning this efficient the same way as mining on an empty block, which removes this incentive to start to mine on an empty block. Um, so yeah, nobody likes empty blocks, but you just cannot go against uh, an economical incentive as a miner, because it's about money. Uh, and this protocol is the right solution to it because it removes this, uh, this Right. Incentives. When I, w- I saw this first
1: occurrence, uh, this was like in the SegWit run up and, and so forth that they were talking about empty blocks. It seemed like a way for a pool like ant pool to raise the actual uh, mempool, therefore uh, You know, increasing that uh, express delivery of your transaction type of service because at the same time, when the men pool got all cluttered, empty blocks were being uh, mined. Then you had these accelerator services come online from from the Chinese pools, and this seemed like a gimmick. It was like uh, let's mine empty blocks to. Uh, raise the the fees or try to get people to use our accelerators. In my mind, it could be used in a a malicious intent, not just uh, what you
3: described. You're perfectly right, Uh, but this is not solved by any protocol. And if somebody decides to not mine blocks with transactions with V2, it is perfectly possible. What we could do is to to remove this one particular reason why still mine empty blocks, even though you you would like to mine as much transaction as possible, uh, but still, it, it doesn't make sense. So th- this has changed, but if somebody wants to play these kind of empty block games, uh, nobody can prevent that. I mean, I, I think it should be fixed
1: at the Bitcoin core level. I, I mean, I never understood the benefit of an empty block to the world. It just seems like it's a it's a way to control the 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 mempool. I
3: think if he can find some algorithm how to uh, make it proper, you can propose it, but I think it's impossible to prevent it I don't think so I mean, well,
1: I mean that's for a different discussion but um okay, could you just um uh, revisit maybe my my uh, other part of the question where I, you can give me, uh, us, the, uh, the rundown of the benefits to the pool owner of why they want to switch to V2? The
2: data bill is very important part as well, because reducing uh, the amount of data being submitted uh, to the pool is uh, pretty, pretty significant in the billing. Uh, so that would be a direct incentive for the pools to, to implement the protocol. Um uh, We can also maybe talk a little bit about the security part of the protocol where we do envision that pools should exclusively support uh, fully encrypted and authenticated channels uh, to prevent uh, you know hash rate hijacking, but that's like a service to the users but it's happening in the real world where today uh, there are viruses for for the actual miners or for routers who are stealing hash rate from From mining farms because of uh, the the current mining protocol is not secure you can easily change your mining account in the submits and then your hash rate is magically going somewhere else and it doesn't need to steal everything if it's stealing just two percent or five percent it's gonna take quite a while until you notice this would be improvement in the quality of the service to the miners
0: absolutely
2: the efficiency we have covered there is,
0: uh, yeah, there is even
3: CPU load decrease by an order of ma- magnitude if uh, miners would use. There are two different modes of the protocol. We call it header-only mining and extended chains mining, or uh, how it's called exactly. But if miners use header-only mining, then the server saves like eighty maybe 85% of CPU power for uh, hash validation, uh, maybe even more, which can be substantial. Because right now, you as a pool operator, you need to rehash all the submits miners are sending to you. You need to double check that the work is correct. So you're hashing like madman. And there is upper bound of how much connection you can have or how much data you can receive as a server uh, because you need to rehash all these submissions and and the header only uh, version of the protocol this is removed like or there is 10x reduction how much hashing you need to do for accepting the same amount of same amount of data just again a good incentive for a co operator we would. We are going to use it. Interesting. Uh, I,
1: I never knew that you had to requalify and hash everything that every worker produces to you. Is that is that correct?
3: Yes. Because you are paying, you are sending them money. If you don't double check that, it's uh, like printing free money. You, you could connect some software uh-huh. uh, pretending it's a miner. And you would receive your payouts. So we need to double check that, that every single submission is actually correct. There are some randomization schemes that you not necessarily need to double check everything, but some random portion, uh, of the submits, but it is more difficult topic. But in principle, whatever, uh, you get as a work, you need to validate and this validation can be reduced 10 times uh, in case of uh,
1: V2. that can't be done in real time. I mean, say, I mean, your pool is doing 5x a hash. You're validating 5x a hash per second, or or is that...?
3: Yes, there is a trick, obviously. Uh, You're not doing so much hashing because uh, the miners are not sending all the hashes they do. uh, There isn't... uh, something what's called a difficulty, we know it just for the network difficulty as a whole. But similar difficulty is used for mining connection. Uh, You're saying to the miner, hey, give me all the results satisfying this difficulty. So that the pool can influence how much work is flowing from the miner to the pool. And this this work needs to be validated, but it's like very tiny part of all the hashing done by all the miners, but still to get the information from the miner so that the miner can see uh, their hash rates on website, for example, or we need to this uh, data for proper uh, payout calculation. Uh, this this data flowing into the pool needs to be validated basically in real time.
1: So you're discarding most of the work and just taking the, the beneficial work and validating it? Is that
2: is that more or less like the sense of it? The miner is. Yeah, the, mine, the miner has a target that he needs to meet. If he doesn't meet, he actually, you know, discards its results. But on average, uh, the pool can estimate its hash rate based on the you know, the rate how often he's submitting these results, uh, considering the pool knows what is the difficulty of the job. And that's the scaling thing that so technically you can have uh, five exahash farm connected to the pool behind a proxy and it would not be like spamming the, the pool because it has set high enough difficulties so that it generates a result, let's say every two or three seconds. Gotcha. And
1: you're seconds. using CPU to process the the validation?
2: Yeah. It's easier to do the validation than, you know, to find the actual nonce for the share. So uh, this proof-of-work algorithm is very nice, is that it's, it's asymmetric. So it takes a lot of effort to find the nonce that, you know, results into a hash that meets your target. Uh, however, it's very fast to, to validate it. But if you scale it up to tens of thousands of connections, you, do, you still do quite a bit of hashing. So, if there is an approach which eliminates this unnecessary hashing because you have prepared a work uh, in a way, uh, we call it header only mining, as Pavel explained, uh, that simplifies the verification of the work on the pool side because you don't have to rebuild the Merkle root of the job all the time because it is fixed for a specific miner. Gotcha.
1: And this is, uh, this is addressed in V2.
2: Yes, this is addressed as a feature of V2.
1: Is your pool uh, hosted on a cloud or is it like servers? It's
2: servers. At servers, we use, we use cloud only for proxying pretty much. Gotcha.
1: Is there a reason? I mean, it, because you, you can probably scale quicker on a cloud, but is, uh, are you more vulnerable? It's,
2: it's a combination. There are not too many clouds that uh, you know, reach good quality. Pretty much reduces to, I don't know, Amazon, Alibaba and these. So that's one thing. You're kind of like risking that you're depending on a single vendor. Second part, the mining itself is pretty sensitive to latencies. And if you're running inside virtual machines on third-party hardware that you don't have like full control of, you cannot be sure about the exact quality of service that you're getting. And you don't want to get like extra latencies in, you know, in the processing power. So there are good reasons why... why you don't want to like run your pool on, on the cloud, but it's it's doable. And second part, uh, running in the cloud, like fully in the cloud is super expensive.
3: There are some security concerns as well. Um, and good, good argument for running in the cloud is DDoS protection. Well, if you wrote your traffic uh, through Amazon, uh, it's much more difficult to use DDoS than if you have your mining uh, server exposed to the internet. So, we tend to have some mixed combination of the actual mining ser- servers being our own hardware and using these cloud large cloud services for protecting us uh, against uh,
1: Well, it sounds like a big benefit to uh, the pools. I hope they, they adopt it and that uh, push them as miners to go in this direction.
2: Maybe one more feature that I find uh, pretty exciting, and we kind of already mentioned it, is that the new protocol actually allows reducing the, the, the job distribution latency in a way that uh, the pool actually sends you the new work ahead with a special flag saying, oh, this is your future work. And then when a new block is found in the network, you only actually, you as a miner, get only a notification saying, oh, and now you can mine on a, on a block that I just sent you. Uh, a few seconds ago or a few minutes ago or whatever uh, so the amount of data that needs to be transferred to the miners is like super low compared to the original protocol where when uh, y- the network finds a new block you still have to distribute even that if, if the block template is empty it's still some data that needs to be sent to the miner and it's significantly larger than, than, this, than this simple uh, notification which is called set new prep hash. This is another optimization that's probably worth and the end result for the miners is that they should be seeing uh lower reject rates because they would know about the new block sooner than with the original protocol.
0: Great. And uh maybe that's a good way to tr- transition into the the last part of the conversation. We want to make sure we respect both of your time joining us. The the questions I'm going to ask right now, or at least part of this conversation, are going to be more, I would say, big picture narrative-based. And one of them would be, uh, why don't we see more pool competition in your minds? I mean, you guys have been around the longest. Uh, it seems still be to be pretty concentrated. There's too much pool competition already. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So dig into that a little bit.
3: There are publicity aspects.
0: Those
3: are businesses they would like to be as big as possible as other businesses would like. Uh, Obviously, there is a centralization problem related to the power of choosing the transactions and building the blocks. Uh, But it is somewhat addressed in V2 that we somewhat eliminate this power centralization in pool hands by the miners possibly choosing the work at the same time, for a pool to provide a service to its users, it needs to be big enough. You as a miner don't want to ever join pool, almost never, join pool which has like 1% of uh, the global hash rate. Because the variance of your payouts or rewards would be really going up and down, or uh, the variance will be high. The reason why you are joining pool is to Get your, uh, money steadily, predictively. And the bigger the pool is, the more predictable, uh, the block generation is. It's, it's basic, uh, statistics. So there is, a natural push for the pools to be bigger to provide proper service or eliminate, uh, the risk on the operator's side yeah so these are the uh critical aspects of pool mining
0: understood um and maybe this is just kind of a you know personal i would say uh you know i've always wondered this is is at, at what scale is a mining pool profitable cuz you know we see ones pop up here and there um but with the rise of these like mega farms that have been starting You know, do you think that miners will get too big and just start rolling their own pools at some point in comparison to, you know, what it needs for a pool to be profitable? Maybe you could talk about that a little bit.
2: Maybe a better way to form the question could be speaking about the variance, because a matter of profitability means you should ask yourself how big your cost is and how long you can run without actually getting a, a. you know, revenue, but assuming that uh, you don't have a software error in your software stack and you're running, let's say, a solo pool just for your operation, if you you mine one block a day and uh, running the pool itself costs you almost zero because you're using just a simple box that you bought at Tiger or whatever, it's good enough. The problem is when it comes to the variance where uh, if you're below like 2 or 3% of the total hash rate of the network then the variance starts coming in and then you could have like days and days without uh, a block mm. which okay this is just bad luck or maybe i have some software problem which is hard to figure out for me or i don't know what the problem could be then some doubts step in and then you start asking yourself is it like w- really worth running this And second part when it comes to the variance it If your company doesn't have a big enough buffer to, you know, to cope with the variant, so basically you have some, you know, operational capital that you can use to run the operation, then you cannot afford yourself mining solo because you would be out of business in a pretty short time if you run run out of cash in that period where your luck is not 100%. So speaking of the profitability, it's a little difficult because it you have to ask yourself what your cost is
0: right and there's a level of bootstrapping that you're gonna have to incur to get get it up to the type of network effect that would actually be meaningful
2: yeah 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 to reduce to, to, for the, pool to have the value is to the, the value of the pool itself is reducing the variance of your reward so you're getting a reward that is spread out uh, in a time period and evenly, you know, you're getting the payouts like every day, every every hour, or whatever.
0: Understood. Um, with the shift towards larger farms, how are large miners managing and monitoring pool connections? Are there, are you seeing a rise in like enterprise software in the mining industry, or is everyone kind of uh, rolling their own uh, versions?
3: I think those both uh, functions are uh, are happening. Historically, people wrote their own management software and uh, the farms is getting bigger than to depend on their own solutions, but we at the same time can see a lot of uh, specialized software packages for miners, helping people to start a farm and manage the devices, so we can see both, both directions.
0: And my my last question, I'm actually stealing this from Matt, so uh, I'll just preface this. Um, we I watched your interview, Jan, on Block TV, and you made a comment in in regards to uh, hash rate always follows pricing rather than the inverse. Um, the, the question is more along the lines of, does this flip when miner capitulation starts? Maybe you could flesh that out more. I know that that's a a topic that in our chat rooms that we're in with other miners. There's always a lot of contention around that, but maybe you want to um, discuss that a little bit.
2: I would I would still kind of like to stand behind this opinion saying that the miners always follow the price because their incentive is to make money. So if they see a profit, which is, you know, the gap between their operational cost and the price of Bitcoin, they decided to step into the industry and then you have, you know, a feedback loop in, in the system where when more miners step into this uh, game the network hash rate and the difficulty rises which reduces their their margins again and that means it's pushing out some of the miners out of the game and the next feedback loop continues and so on and so on so I still really uh, want to stick with the, with the opinion that miners do follow the price even if you have some miners that do capitulate. If that means that they're going out of business. Then you probably may have some other miners that are able to enter the, the industry again. Um, so this is how I, I see the system. Like, but, but modeling the, the whole system and predicting it, that's another challenge with regards to, to price, price uh, you know, changes and evolution.
0: Uh, do you think we're close to a, a capitulation point right
2: now? Um, if I think if the exchange rates stayed at the same level till May, then we would see some interesting things happening.
1: Do you think they're going to go down? I, I'm of the impression that uh, it, it's also dependent upon the minor pricing. And when uh, the manufacturers set one pricing, they're setting it at, at their level to make a profit and to ROI. But what we've seen from this Predator Bitmain is is that they use this as a retaliatory measure and lower the price, even though we all know that it's costing them more to make these seven nanometer miners and uh, it it could be closer to break even for them instead of uh, getting a profit. Price of the miner acquisition has something to do with it, I think. Because right now what I'm seeing Uh, in the miner sales is that the price is dropping on the spot market but the pre-sales have already been sold so you have people who made their bets who are now looking at their bets and saying what is my bet right or wrong at this point because the hash rate rose so fast so it's an interesting uh, teeter-totter with the hash rate the price the pricing of the new miners on the market
2: it's it's completely different from regular consumer electronics, where you, as a as a manufacturer, would say, "Okay, this is my cost to manufacture the device, and I'm happy with 100% margin, and that's enough for me, and I'll be selling enough." But when a few years ago, when we were trying to estimate the prices of the mining devices, it turns out, like you said, that the manufacturers actually do calculate the price based on uh, return of investment. For their end customers, and they basically want to keep this constant somehow, right? Is that what we saw? And that's that, so that's why they start price surging when when the exchange rate starts going up, and the other way around. And then the question is, uh, how beneficial is it for them to actually go below their uh, you know manufacturing cost? But that also influences the market in a in a weird way. But I mean. Uh, We have free markets, so I mean, they really can do anything they want. And if this would be something that would be damaging to the Bitcoin, that means that Bitcoin does not work. So we really have to cope with all this. And I I mean, we can look at it that they're greedy and it's not good, but we do have a system here that allows uh, gaming like this. And if the system is supposed to survive, this means that even those situations in the mining hardware market must not have negative influence on our you know, Bitcoin ecosystem. I mean, the, the negative influences that we see are actually not negative. They're just you know, side effects of having Bitcoin and having you know, a decentralized permissionless system where there are incentives to make money, which actually allows the ecosystem to exist and survive. So it's very interesting to observe it, even though it could be, Annoying for for people who are like trying to build their businesses on it.
1: Well, that that goes to the point of building a business is that when you go and you build a farm and you buy miners at twenty eight hundred or twenty seven hundred in May from Bitmain, and then all of a sudden they drop the price to seventeen hundred on the miners. I, I mean, you, you start scratching your head because you didn't get your miners to September or October. And you just burnt all the people that just spent a lot of money with you.
2: Uh, I, I agree. I...
1: Yeah, the only saving grace is that we have so many new entrants or people that have amnesia. <laughs> that that it just that, that the incentive to make uh, money in Bitcoin just overrides all logic. Because in other businesses, I don't know if if customers would return to invest in in infrastructure, knowing that they're going to be undercut by the manufacturer when the manufacturer trying to ruin their competition again. So it's not only going after their competition, it's also going after the end user consumer. If you spent a million dollars with Bitmain, your, your chances of ROIing are going to be less and less as they sell more and more. The hash rate goes up and up. You know, this was something I never calculated when I got into Bitcoin uh, mining in the originally and uh, really burnt me. But um, just uh, a couple more questions for you guys and then uh, we'll let you go. I can't help but notice that as of uh, the hash rate picking up, uh, you know, in the beginning of this year, it seems like we have a new entrant to the pool community and uh, pooling and, I haven't seen your actual hash rate rise in relation to the hash rate, you know, more than doubling since last year. Can you tell us uh, maybe why this is happening and uh, and what you could do to remedy this? And maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know I, I, because what I'm interpreting here is is that uh, the hash rate uh, did more than double, but. Uh, your percentage went down in relation to it and it's kind of stayed the same as far as hashing on the network.
2: Um, I can comment on, on part of this. What is happening is that in the recent time the new models of mining hardware started being you know deployed and the first uh, areas or geographical areas that that were supplied with this hardware was China. Uh, our presence is China exists, however, um, for us it 's still uh, you know difficult to build the business relations there because you know all the cultural differences and like even the physical presence and most of the deals in China are really done on a personal level so for us, the lesson learned is that we do have to be present physically in China, talking to people talking to minors attending the conferences and this is the part that accounts to part of the hash rate that's been deployed to the network that you know landed in China and didn't land on our pool and second part is uh, the competition between the pools, you know the, the, the fee policies, payout schemes uh, and things like that.
3: you Are right that we, we didn't have the growth of, uh, of the hash rate or of the whole network uh, and believe us we spent non trivial time right now, uh, adjusting our uh, business strategy because, as we discussed before, for a pool to provide the proper service, it needs to be enough. We don't necessarily need to be the biggest pool in the world and we don't have this ambition necessarily, uh, but still uh, there is something to be done in this area for us to be uh, stronger
0: Yeah, usually we wrap up these shows by getting a little bit of a hash guesstimate by the end of the year. And, and, you know, we're pretty close to the end of the calendar year. And so what would be your network hash rate uh, guesstimate that we hit?
3: My personal guess would be, unfortunately, uh, roughly this hash rate. Because of dropping price and people disconnecting some machines, and at the same time, uh, still machines will uh, join the network. Uh, I would like to say that the history will go up because the price will recover uh, and go up as well. But I don't know what the is would be stronger, so my guess would be roughly this, uh, this amount of as we have right now.
2: Gotcha. And how about you, Jan? Um, I'm so. I think we already saw a little drop in the hash rate lately. There was a drop in difficulty by about ten uh, percent, if I remember correctly, in the last period. Well, we sometimes have surprises, but my my guesstimate is we are probably gonna hit a little bit over a hundred exahash, but nothing more than that. There's just month and a half to go, so.
1: Do you think um, that uh, we've already baked in a lot of the uh, halving run-up?
2: Mm. What uh, I feel from from various articles is that this time uh, the halving will not may not have such a significant impact on the price, and the reason is that there is already so many bitcoins in circulation, so the re- reduction in the subsidy is not like. From 50 to 25, it's just from 12 to 6, but I'm hoping I'm wrong. I would
3: like to say that the halving is not priced in yet and we'll see a huge
0: price rise. There we go. Uh, yeah, I would really like to see
3: it. Uh, I'm pretty sure the halving is not priced in fully yet. But I feel like it is more a dream that the same situation will repeat in in this happening as was before, because people just know much more and there's much more stronger technically and financially players who already operate on the Bitcoin market. So I don't think the, the change will be so large, but I would love to be wrong.
0: Excellent well we just wanted to thank you both uh Jan and Pavel uh for joining us today and taking your time to to talk with us i'm sure we could have actually spent even more time especially getting in to the weeds on you know both your uh the two product announcements um but we wanted to kind of respect your time and and i think at at some point when we see some uh implementations out in the wild we could love to have you back for an update on things. Could you uh, just spend a minute and give us uh, uh, our listeners a way to find out about how to contact you guys or your, your products and services.
2: Yeah. So uh, the mining itself is on slashpool.com. slash uh, If people are interested in looking into brains, OS it's brains OS.org. And we have a Twitter account, uh, slashpool and brain systems. If you want to reach out to person, you can find our Twitter.
3: If the listener is interested in the starting protocol, uh, they can go to startingprotocol.org and there is a nice explanation of the features of the protocol for normal people, not uh, programmers trying to implement the protocol, but for, from, for normal Bitcoiners who would like to understand more. So they, they can go there.
0: Excellent. Matt, you got anything else before we wrap up?
3: Nope. Thank you, guys.
1: Fascinating conversation. Hope to have you back on uh, when you've implemented uh, more miners on the the Brains OS. And uh, I'd love to touch on your your rewriting of the CG miner, but we didn't have time today. And I'll prepare a bunch of more questions the next time we speak.
2: Well, let, let's speak about it when the alpha is uh, published. We still have the preview published, but it's not like a full production thing. So let's, we'll, we'll get a chance to talk about it, I'm sure. Absolutely.
3: We're looking forward to having another conversation.
0: Thanks for having us. Absolutely. And thank you for joining us on episode 15 of the Crypto Miner Podcast. Catch you later.
2: Yep. Bye. See ya.